You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. At this time, we ask that you turn off all cell phones. Unless, of course, you're using them to listen to this podcast. In which case, please keep it on. And please refrain from any flash photography, as it is dangerous to the performers of this podcast. Please be advised that this production may contain strobe effects, loud or sudden noises, nudity, and But probably not. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Don't you see? It's so simple. Step one, we Google the biggest flops on Broadway. Step two, we find the crazy stories behind them. Step three, we see how they lose millions of dollars. Millions? Broadway isn't cheap. A lot of fancy people want to be producers. Step four, find out why the show won't go on. Step five, end this episode and head to Times Square. Times Square? That'll never work. Only Broadway successes are in Times Square. Oh, 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 ye of little faith. Started up with the song. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know the words, do you? I don't know. I don't know the words. <laughs> I know it started out with a song. Is that the title? I don't. I don't think There's so. There's this part in the. Oh, are we recording? I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, we just recorded. <laughs> oh well. Well, it's not like you didn't know I liked to sing. Yeah, and that we are constantly talking about the theater. Constantly. So, constantly. <laughs> That's how this whole thing started. It's true. We talked about theater and we decided to do a podcast. About theater. So we could talk about, about theater, theater more. So that we could schedule time to talk about theater, talk about theater for hours. We literally will text each other and be like, when can you meet to talk about theater? And I'll be like, <laughs> I can meet now. And she's like, I can meet now. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. That's basically <laughs> how it works. Those are our combos. <laughs> we like, And it's funny, too, because we met at church. Yeah originally and we mm-hmm. go to the same church and we didn't really know anything about each other as far as the theater was concerned but there was something about each other like <laughs> each of us that like just made us form a bond I don't even remember the first well we time bonded we over out. apple picking didn't we go to no we, did, it wasn't, but we, we, we hung out before then yeah yeah and then uh my birthday last year you came to see she loves me with Which us was so good it was really good a great production it was really good yeah i really enjoyed laura benanti yes hitting those high notes and with her pregnant self ice cream (laughs) just love that's mine i didn't want to blast out the microphone so i did it in my (laughs) beauty 
My fingers are crossed that she'll get my fair lady. She's desperate oh, for it. Well, she'd be great. Yeah, she would. She would be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we should say what the show is. Oh, my gosh. Hi, everybody. I'm Pamela. <laughs> and this is Ebony. <laughs> Boy, that just really devolved, didn't it? <laughs> hey, you've stumbled upon a little old podcast called Theater Geeks Anonymous, where we talk about Broadway flops, scandals, and new works. Who fails, who sues, we tell their story. We do. You're going to tell the story today. I am going to tell the story today. And I have so many feelings about uh, this one. Well, it's a, it's a Sondheim. Yeah, it's a great it's a great show. And the story, I'm at an age now where I'm at what would actually be considered the beginning of the show. <laughs> right. We're old. But which is like technically <laughs> the end. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's told backwards. If people don't know, the original uh, concept and the original production of the show, Merrily We Roll Along, cast all kids, like basically like everyone in their teens, mm-hmm. early 20s. And the story is told backwards to for- to beginning. Uh, and at the end of the show, they're all of these jaded in their 40s. Their dreams didn't come no, true. They've had to. That's hmm? not the end. The end, they're oh, at I'm the sorry. beginning. <laughs> So no, they're yeah. young people. No, no. At the at the beginning is the end. So the end is when they're jaded thought- and stuff. So that's the beginning of the show. Right. <laughs> oh, it's so a very- well, this, this is probably this part is of the, re- the problem <laughs> right here. Right so here. So says some of the critics who didn't enjoy the show as yeah. much as we do. Yeah, I really like it. So I was singing. It started out with a song <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Um and there's this part in the, right at the beginning of the show when they're just starting to like write this, or I guess it's at the end of the song, uh, show. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where it comes, but uh, they're <laughs> just starting to write this song, and like they've got typewriters, mm-hmm. so they're they're playing it on the piano. It started out with a song, and then they'll go over to the typewriter to that. That's at the beginning of the show. Okay, that piece, and then when they're actually singing, Lonnie Price is singing the song. That's the end of the show. It that's the last song. Started out with the song. That's that's the last <laughs> song sung on the soundtrack. Okay, so Ebony, tell me about "Merrily We Roll Along." Okay, so "Merrily We Roll Along" was actually a play. So the play "Merrily We Roll Along" was written by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. Kaufman and Hart. Yep. Good Kaufman old Kaufman and, and Hart. They're great. The story starts from the end when your main characters are in their middle, the middle, their middle ages. So they're in their 40s. Richard Niles is a pretentious 40-year-old playwright who writes successful but forgettable frothy comedies. Niles is hosting a party for his wealthy friends at his Long Island home on the opening night of his new play. His life is empty, petty, and loveless. The story moves backwards in nine scenes from 1934 to 1916 as Niles achieves success bit by bit, compromising his integrity and principles. He drives his friend, the novelist Julia Glenn, which was patterned after Dorothy Parker, to drink, loses his best friend, painter Jonathan Crail, and betrays his wife, the glamorous actress Althea Royce simply to gain material comforts and satisfy his ambitions. In the final scene, Niles on graduation day at his college idealistically quotes the words of Polonius, this above all, to thine own self be true. So that's the play. That's the play. (laughs) So just a little light comedy. Light light comedy. By Kaufman and Hart. Okay, so... uh, 
Hart uh, came up, so Moss Hart came up with this idea um, on a journey from Hollywood to New York in 1931, and he was inspired to write a play with these themes, but before he could realize his vision, uh, Noel Coward wrote a similar story called Cavalcade. <gasps> Coward! <laughs> uh, which was done in England, so he shelved the idea, and then a few years later, uh, Hart talked about it with Kaufman, his regular collaborator, and the idea had now evolved to tell a story backwards about an idealistic yet ambitious playwright and his difficulties. Okay. It was Hart's notion to tell the story of the entertainment and art world from World War I to the Depression by creating a tale of three friends and telling it backwards. Besides being a fabulous time capsule of the period, the play features a thinly veiled portrait of the author's colleague Dorothy Parker and Ju as Julia Glenn. So Julia Glenn will end up being Mary in okay. the musical. Okay. Uh, the central female character. Best pal. A supporting character based on George Ger Gershwin is also depicted, and this would be in the musical Gussie Carnegie. The Broadway production, directed by Kaufman, opened on September 29, 1934, at the Music Box Theater, where it ran for 155 performances. The cast included Kenneth McKenna as Richard Niles, Walter Abel as Jonathan Crail, Jesse Royce Landis as Althea Royce, and Mary Phillips as Julia Glenn. Uh... Uh, it had nine separate scenes and a cast of 91 actors. Holy cow. Yeah. In a play? Yeah. 91 people. Yeah. That is a lot. It's a lot of people. I, I took a playwriting class and our instructor said, nowadays at most 10. Yeah. At most 10. Yeah. So 91. You got 100 times that. Well, not 100. Yeah, 100 times that. 10 times that. Nine, 10 times that. Math. I know. We're not. I'm not good at math. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, yeah, 91's huge. 91's Sheesh. huge for a musical. I mean, where are they going to, like, what, how, how many dressing rooms did the Music Box Theater have? It doesn't have as many as they needed. And it's actually one of the tinier yeah. theaters on Broadway. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even imagine that like sharing a dressing room with 10 other people, no. like a tiny, a tiny three person dressing room filled with 10 people. I would, I would have to quit. <laughs> so of course it was impractical to tour the play because the cast was so huge. Mm -hmm. uh, either before or after it's Broadway opening. So as the through line runs through our entire podcast. There was no tryout. Oh, okay. The kiss of death. I know. A film sale to MGM did not yield a screen version. Okay. So so they had sold the rights to MGM for it to become a movie. And they just never, it never made it. never happened. Okay. Uh, although the production received mostly good notices, it was a financial failure. Mm. The play has not been revived on Broadway. And it did have a little tour, apparently, but it oh. didn't last long. It couldn't, because you had 91 people. <laughs> like, I just... I feel like musicals don't even have that oh, many no, people in them. Don't. There's like 30? Yeah. Oh, my... Which is a lot. It, it is a lot for a musical. Now 91 wait, wait, people. Three times that. <laughs> I'm smart. See? <laughs> I can do math. So... So the play was not a financial success, which 
I, I usually think it's a, like when people decide, you know, whether it's like to remake a movie that didn't do well or mm-hmm. to remake a play that didn't do well. I usually think that's not a terrible idea. No, because they can use the mistakes that were made in the right. original production and learn from them. And, right. And, and try do something to fix else. it. Yeah. It's like um, Ocean's Eleven. So the original Ocean's Eleven was not a hit. Mm-hmm. But the remake was a huge hit huge and then they made like several sequels and i only watched the first one i know me maybe too. i watched oceans maybe the 12 second one, yeah but it was not great no it wasn't they should as have good. stopped yeah. after the first one always <laughs> shut down while you're ahead yep so enter <laughs> the kings of broadway stephen sondheim and hal prince that's right <laughs> okay so Stephen Sondheim and Harold Prince had collaborated on multiple productions up to that point, including but not limited to Follies, Sweeney Todd, and Company. Three really amazing shows. Yes. Yes. Two of which were incredibly successful. They were. Follies was not. So not all of the ones that they had collaborated on had been successful. Mm -hmm. But they still continued to work together, and most of what they did together was successful. Yeah. So... There is this thinking that uh, there's a thinking that because Hal and Steven were very young when they started, mm-hmm. I mean, they used to sit around and chit chat when uh, Hal said Steven was 18 and Hal was 20. Goodness. And they would sit around and chit chat about theater and what they wanted to do in the theater. And this was before it was, like, they were a team. Yeah. Before it was, like, Prince and Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just friends because they had worked on West Side Story together with yes. Lenny B. Lenny B. Lenny B. <laughs> so, um, so when, when it got to this point with Marilee, we roll along, and they had had several hits, there's this thinking that there was sort of a disdain for them mm-hmm. because they were young and had hit it so big at the beginning yeah. of their career. Um, they peaked early. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is you can't, you can't actually say that because Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim are still. Yes. <laughs> like everyone looks up to them. Yes. Still. If you have any reverence for the musical theater, <laughs> you look up to Harold Prince and Stephen right. Sondheim. Well, and it's not even as if like once they ended their collaboration right. that they just fell into obscurity. Right. They both went on to still create wonderful things. Exactly. So, but the problem was there's this thinking that there was a disdain for them and their collaboration and just them in general for being so young and being successful. Yeah. That like... When they created Merrily We Roll Along, everyone wanted them to fail already. Yeah. And I will say that uh, upon interviews I've heard where people, like, will randomly talk about the show, I still, this show, Merrily We Roll Along, came about in 1981, um, which was before I was born. It was the year of my birth. <laughs> and... <laughs> I hear people as recent as, you know, a few months ago who talk about the show and say things like, you know, those kids were up there and they had such smug faces and it was just like so good to see their smug faces, 
you know, oh dwindled gosh. or whatever. That's awful. Isn't it? They're children. They're children. They were children. But it's also like they didn't have anything to do with right. with making the show. Right. They were they were paid to perform it. This is what people don't understand. This is why it's so hard being an actor. Yeah. We are the last people hired. Right. We are the last, you know, we we don't have any idea what the story is before we get there. And right. we have no control over what the story is mm-hmm. once we are on stage mm-hmm. doing it. But we're the ones people see, so we're the ones people blame. Right. And it's awful. Well, and I think, too... <laughs> I, I don't, I just, I don't understand the disdain and anger. Um, well, it's like you want to knock them down a peg. Right. Why? They're children. I don't get that. Well, and not even the... just the children, but, but Sondheim and Prince right. as well. Why? It's like if someone's doing well, it's, it's insecurity. Yeah. This is like, this is this whole psychological idea behind why people, why people are jerks. This will be my dissertation when I get my psychology degree. <laughs> I'm not going for a psychology degree. But it's like we want to succeed so badly for ourselves so that when we see other people succeeding, we, since we are not, mm-hmm. we want to make sure that they aren't. We all want to be on a level playing field, really which is ridiculous. I I have a firm belief that if you are in if you are unable to be happy for someone else, when they are getting what they feel that they want to get out of life, mm-hmm. when they are being successful in what they love, if you are unhappy, if you are not able to be happy for them, you cannot expect other people to be happy for you when you get whatever it is you think you're supposed well, to have. And honestly, if you can't be happy for someone else, then there is no possible way that you could be happy for yourself, even if you were successful. Yeah. Because there's always something else that you want. There's right. always something more to strive for. So, yes, finally, I've got a Broadway show, but now I want to be in a film. Well, finally, I've got this film, but now I want to be a director. Director, and like you're just never satisfied. It's it's awful. I just, I, it is, and I just when I when I heard that, I felt uh, children. Oh, gracious! <laughs> okay, so smug I, I just I couldn't. Uh, I mean, ridiculous. the ages of the kids who were hired were ages 24 to 16. Mm-hmm. So you were actually pissed off at children. I can't. Okay. Lyrics and music from Merrily We Roll Along were written by Stephen Sondheim. The book was written by George Firth and, of course, Hal Prince directed. Uh, so Hal Prince came up with this idea because his wife, Judy, was asking him. She was like, Hal, you have kids now. Why don't you write a, a musical or work on something that's about <laughs> children? Uh, so Judy was like, she kept putting a bug in his ear, putting a bug in his ear. And so he was like, okay, okay. <laughs> so he thought about it and he his brain went back to the play Merrily We Roll Along and mm-hmm. he loved the play. So he went to his friend Steven and he was like, Steve, so I got this idea. Merrily We Roll Along, what do you think about it? What do you think about turning it into a musical? And Steven was like, that's a great idea. In the, in the, in the documentary, uh, the best worst thing that could have ever happened, <laughs> Steven is adorable and he goes, and I thought it was a swell idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good documentary. It really too. is so it re- great. It has so much uh, historical footage yeah. from when they were putting it together. It's really neat. So cute. So um, <laughs> swell. Yeah, I thought it was a swell idea. <laughs> so precious. 
I'm, I think I might have to start calling him Grandpa Steve. <laughs> so cute. All of our favorite composers and producers are going to be Grandpa, Grandpa, whatever. So we've got Grandpa Hal, Grandpa Charlie, Charlie. Grandpa Steve. Grandpa Steve. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, the biggest change that was made from the play to the musical was that instead of having multiple people of varying ages play the characters, they had young people play the same characters from the time they were graduating up through their 40s. Mm-hmm. So that's where I said before you had the age range of the people who were hired to act in this show were ages 20. The oldest was 24 and the youngest was 16. But playing 40 at the top of the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, right. So the musical began with the characters in their 40s and then we end the play seeing where they started before life got to them. OK. Uh, the show this is what I've said before. The show didn't go out of town. There were no out-of-town tryouts. Yeah. They held auditions in New York City with an open call, and kids came from all over the country to audition. Kids who had been listening to every record of every show Stephen Sondheim had written <laughs> up to that point. Mm-hmm. So this is one of my favorite parts of the documentary. Me too. Is... You know, Lonnie Price says, I just knew that I was the only kid who had every album of every Stephen Sondheim show and nobody but nobody could do a Stephen Sondheim show as well as I could. (laughs) And then they cut to uh, cut to like one of the other people who was in it. And she says the exact same thing. I had every record (laughs) of Stephen Sondheim. It's just I mean, this movie is the quintessential like, if you were a theater geek, you have mm. got to see this movie because yes. it never changes. You will, uh, like, they're all, everyone in the cast is older than Pamela and I are. And they are still geeking out yes. so hard. It's so amazing it's to wonderful. watch. You're like, I'm not alone. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, I think that's what breaks my heart so much as well as, you know, these young people were as hardcore as we are and love the theater as much Getting as we did. Getting cast as their and their Broadway debut. As like the people they felt like were Jason Alexander in the documentary says it was how Prince and Stephen Sondheim. The only thing that could have made it better is if you had God and Moses <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sitting yeah. next to them. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Amen. <laughs> yes. And amen. And amen. <laughs> Um, so then the lead characters in uh, Merrily We Roll Along, the names were changed. So you had Frank Shepard, who was um, the, the main character in the play. Uh, the name was Richard Niles. Okay. So they changed it to Frank Shepard. You had Charlie Kringis and Mary Flynn. Um, and so Frank Shepard was played by James Weisenbach when it was initially um cast cast and then Lonnie Price played Charlie Gringus Kringus sorry and then Ann Morrison got Mary Flynn and she was the last of the three main characters to be cast um and then other notable actors who were in the show are Liz Calloway Tanya Pinkins and Jason Alexander from Sondheim fame (laughs) Seinfeld Seinfeld. I said Sondheim. You said Sondheim. Too many S's. It's true. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) September 1981, 
The kids finally go into rehearsal for the production after many delays and starts. So they had been waiting, uh, I believe it was about a year and a half, give or take a few months. And so they were memorizing their lines. They were rehearsing with each other. They would literally have waiting parties. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And at one of the waiting parties, they... One of the kids said to Lonnie Price, who it was going to be a birthday party, and um, they said, Lonnie, why don't you call up Hal and see if he will come? And Lonnie's like, how's that going to come to our party? He's not going to come. But and they were like, but you should, but you should invite they him. They both But you came. should say it. <laughs> and so Lonnie calls, Lonnie calls Hal, and he's like, so excited to come. And he's like, yeah, and I'll bring Steven. And awesome. Lonnie's like, Steven, sometime going to be in my so he kicks his parents out of the apartment is like you have to leave how princess team's on nine we're coming to our house and you have to leave right now and um they had like a dessert party because it was a birthday party and then steven sondheim sits at uh the piano and he plays one of the new songs that he had just written for the show yep and lonnie is so old school he had a tape recorder like his panasonic <laughs> and he's like i may or may not have hit record and so in the documentary, you can hear Steven singing one of the new songs he wrote. Just but, what a cool yeah. memory is that. And like Lonnie's like, and my room was lined with Steven Sondheim posters. Right? <laughs> so he's like, it's like you already have a shrine to a human being. Yeah. And then, and and then, then he's he, there. He, it's just, I can't. Uh, my brain is. It's amazing. Explo- like I'm just. It's what we all dream yeah, of. Yeah, 100%. As little fledgling theater geeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It really is. So, so rehearsal started 1981. Um, and then previews began on October 8th of 1981. Okay. Uh-oh. Here's where it takes a turn. This is where it begins to take a turn. So, uh, one of the first changes that was made, I'm, I'm just going to give you a systematic list of changes that happened one after the other All after right. the other. On October 21st, 1981, James Weisenbach was officially replaced by Jim Walton. So again, James Weisenbach was to play Frank Shepard, which is the lead character. He's replaced by Jim Walton, who was basically in the ensemble. He had mm-hmm. like a smaller part, and so he was Probably replaced. understudied him, yeah. Um, and so they said uh, in the documentary that they were... James James would ask how you know how am I doing am I doing all right you know should I cut my hair should I do this should I do that and nobody would ever say to him this every, yeah, needs to every be response changed. was just like no you're doing great you're doing, you're doing great. great you're doing great and so when they were thinking about casting changes um Ann Morrison says that initially she had heard that her and Lonnie were going to be replaced because they felt like they were too theatrical like Lonnie had uh he'd been interning with Stephen he had been to Juilliard mm-hmm. uh and him and Anne were just they were just around the theater so much already but then uh she said after some more uh previews they were finding that it was actually James who needed to be replaced because he he could move it didn't yeah, feel like I think it mentioned clicked. that he was really kind of stiff. Yeah, he was stiff and uh, couldn't move as well. And then um, when Jim Walton was in there, they said it just felt like everything clicked. Yeah. 
But I feel really, really bad for James Weisenbach. That's the business. I, I mean, it is. It's heartbreaking. You know, you never want someone. You you always want to think. Well, you hired me. You must have seen something in me. Right. So of course I'm I'm right for this role. But every once in a while, you'll hire the wrong person, and they'll get in yeah. there, and you're just like, this "Gosh, you're working. so talented, but just not for this." Well, and I think that if tryouts had happened, <laughs> they would have known sooner. Yes, and it wouldn't have it been so devastating. It wouldn't have been so embarrassing. Yeah. I think I. I mean, if I had been James, I would have just been so embarrassed on Broadway. Yeah. Okay. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, um, so that's the first thing. And then the choreographer, Ron Field, is replaced by Larry Fuller. Okay. Then, um... During previews, the cast and producers were real. Oh, okay. I already said that. We'll cut that out. <laughs> so Hal. Okay. So this is one part. Another part in the documentary. Anne Morrison says Hal Prince comes to her, and he says, "No, Anne. I'm thinking about getting rid of all the costumes, <laughs> and instead, I'm going to replace them and have everyone wear sweatshirts and T-shirts that." have their the title of the character the character's name on them <laughs> um and so you had you know sh- shirts with actual names but then you have pl- publicist right playwright producer writer <laughs> and upon you know doing the research i found out the the reason how was thinking about doing this was because people were having a really difficult time following the story oh yeah and following who was who well it's hard enough i think when you're telling a story backwards to forwards right. and then they had a they still had a huge cast mm-hmm. so it's not 91 people but it's still a lot yeah. of people so i can see that that would be right. i mean i do it it is a good device to use uh, you know i'm not I don't know. There's so many things probably that led up to the demise of this show that you can't. That's probably something that helped. But I can see where he's coming from. Well, um, I read an article where Stephen said that he he said one of the one of the problems with doing the costumes that way is like he felt like people came. You come to a Broadway show and you want to see like the best of the best. Yeah, and having you know, sweatshirts with names on them sort of felt a little am- amateurish. Well, and you're having these characters that are supposed to be 40 played by 24. So it does feel right. probably like a high school production right. or a college production. So, yeah, I can see it from that point of view, too. I, th- I think costuming would have helped. It wouldn't yeah. have fixed everything, no. but it definitely would have helped. You know what else would have helped? What? Tryouts. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Always. I don't know why people skip them. Well. Okay. Um, <laughs> three songs were also dropped 
Uh, they were called, the songs were The Blob, Honey, and Darling. Solo speeches directed to the main audience were added to help people understand who the characters were. Oh, my goodness. Um, the set, which was gymnasium style, people also felt like, uh, again, it said in that same vein of this doesn't feel like a Broadway this production. This is a high school show. Yeah, it feels like a high school show. Yeah, you've you got have, high school bleachers. Right, with high school students yeah. wearing high school costumes. <laughs> it's a high school show. Yeah, it's like... I, <laughs> The Cafejimatorium. Remember yeah. that? Oh, we had one. Yeah. We called it the common area. The common area. <laughs> but it's basically a Cafejimatorium. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, so then their biggest cheerleader was Clive Barnes of the New York Post. And he was their biggest. He was championing the show and championing. Champ- championing. Championing. <laughs> it's been show. a long day. It has. I'm like, it's almost her bedtime. It is. So, uh, <clears throat> so then people, when, when they were in previews, people were leaving the show in droves. Like before the show was finished? Yeah. Oh. So, uh, some of the actors said they were, they were singing to people's backs. Oh, I remember them saying yeah. like, it would be a full row and then they would look back and it yeah. would be a half empty row. Yeah. Uh or they that's could like, they could see the, the people worst. leaving, yeah. so they were see- yeah. yeah. See, that's something that audience members don't get because they think that they're in the dark, but we can see you. Yeah. Yep. We can see you. <laughs> so let that be a lesson I, to I wait until people, intermission to yeah, leave. People think they're watching television, right? This, you don't have a remote. You no, can't change the channel. No. But just wait. Because you never know. Also, you never know if it will get better right. or, you know, if something will decide to. Or you know what? It's just a fun story. Hey, guess what I saw? It was this horrible show. Right. But I stayed until the end because I had to tell you what it was about and why I stayed. I I I have never left a show. No, me wait, neither. I left one improv show. Okay. Well, that's different. Because if it's bad improv, it's not going to get better. And I left it during the break. Okay. Yeah. Because you're kind. Because you're conscientious to the feelings of the performers who sometimes it's no fault of theirs that you didn't like the show. Well, with improv, it's definitely your fault. It's them. It's totally them. But you're (laughs) still kind. You're still a nice person. I was like, I'm still, I'll, we'll wait. (laughs) The show opened on November 16th, 1981 at the Alvin Theater, which is now the Neil Simon Theater. Okay. On Kaufman's birthday. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Did Uh, they plan that? I don't know. No, because it was delayed so much. Oh, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) So like, happy accident. Just happened. Yeah. The show's uh, time device proved too confusing for the audiences, especially when combined with the with a crowd of indistinguishable characters. So, like, I guess there's just too Even many Even with people. their t-shirts with their names it's on them. Too, so many. It's too many, yeah. The three central characters were also flawed. The protagonist, Frank Shepard, came off mean and cynical in the first scenes, and audiences were turned off. Nobody wants to sit. Okay, so I read this somewhere. They were like, nobody wants to sit for two hours to learn about the career of a person that they don't like. So this is yeah. like when we were talking about Legs Diamond, and mm-hmm. I sat there and I watched the movie and I was just screaming at the television why would anyone want to make a musical about this person he's heinous yeah absolutely heinous yep so I think it was a similar feeling about Frank Shepard is he was not you if you're gonna sit through a a musical and you want 
your audience to root for mm-hmm. the main character, you have to make them, at the very least, even if they're not a particularly good person. Yeah. They you, need to be redeemable. Right. They have to be redeemable and you have to be able to see a piece of yourself in them. Yes. You know, it's like Aaron Burr in Hamilton. I've literally never seen him as the villain. Really? As many times as I've seen that show. Oh, in the show you've never yeah, seen. Yeah, in the okay. show. I've never seen, I never saw him as the villain. Even though, like, I, uh, the room where it happens, I feel like it's very. Oh, that's r- such a good it's song. It's a fantastic song. And when you see it, it sort of reminds you of Rasputin in um, Anastasia. Sure. I still was like, I, I just saw him as a person. Yeah. Who the one moment in his life where he didn't have total self-control ended up being his the defining moment yeah. of his entire existence. Like and everyone makes mistakes, but you never want that one mistake to right. be the thing that everyone remembers about you. And I feel like even when I try to talk to other people about it, they have like this hatred of him. But when you see the show, you're like, he was so controlled and made so many like just controlled careful decisions and the one time he didn't do that is the time like everyone defines him by that moment yeah it's i mean nobody wants to be remembered for their worst moment right (sighs) yep gracious sakes (laughs) but at least with that show i felt like i could feel that for Aaron Burr, but with Frank Shepard, I don't think people were feeling any. Sure. Um, so the afterlife of Marilyn we roll along. It was done off Broadway at the York Theater in 1994. Um, it was done in San Diego at La Hala Playhouse, and it was directed by James Lapine in 1985, and then he directed it two more times. I think it's La Jolla. La Jolla. What, what did I say? La Hala. La Hala. Maybe it is J- La Jolla. J O L L A. Yeah. Yeah, La Jolla. La Jolla. Okay. Uh, arena stage in 1990 in DC. Okay. And then, uh, we, oh no, we talked about this. We talked about this before we were recording, but (laughs) it was done at Encores at New York City Center with Celia Keenan-Bolger, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Colin Donnell. And it was directed by James Lapine, who incorporated direction from his 1985 production. Awesome. Well, there was another cast recording too with, uh, Malcolm Getz. Malcolm. Okay. From Caroline in the City. Remember that TV yeah. show? Yeah, that's the right name. Okay. And that's the recording that I first heard. Okay. That then was like, oh, I have to listen to this. So then I was yeah. able to listen to the original. But yeah, that came out. Would that would have been the 94? I don't know. Don't worry about it. Okay. You don't know. We'll, we'll let you know in the intermission <laughs> if it's that's important. Okay. <laughs> the show was only nominated for one Tony Award. And Which that was one? for Stephen Sondheim. Okay. Best, mu- or best score? Yes. Okay. And it lost. The one Tony. Oh, goodness. What was it up against that year? Do you know? Oh, Lord. I'd have to look that up. No, no worries. <laughs> I keep asking you really awful questions because you don't know the answer. It's fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> uh, and then, as we stated before, the show has a huge following. Yeah. Um, the day after the show closed, on November 28th, 1981, the cast recorded a cast recording on November 29th, 1981. And then on September 30th in 2002, the cast got together for a concert of the musical. And uh, they just give you, like, clips that you can watch, clips in the documentary. And I think there's some things on YouTube. 
Probably. Um, but after Merrily We Roll Along, Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim never did another piece of theater together again. They never collaborated again. Because they were so devastated by what happened. And you, when, you, when you watch the, document, the documentary and you listen to um, what the cast members say and how... Just how fatherly mm. Stephen and Hal were to them and how much they cared. Yeah. And Stephen and Hal talk about how much they cared and they had no inkling that they, they never thought this show would fail. Mm-mm. They were so excited. And to this day, they say it's still the best <laughs> rehearsal process they yeah. ever had. I mean, they just had so much fun. They loved the kids so much and they... The kids loved them so much. Yeah. The kids loved them. You know, it's like, you know, we talked about um, in another episode, Bring Back Birdie and, you know, somebody that uh, Pamela really loves turned out to be not such a nice human being. <laughs> but it's like these kids basically worshipped at the altar of Prince and Sondheim and then they got to meet them and those two men ended up being just as awesome as yeah, they, they were always imagining. Yeah. yeah. And they still remain that way. Like, they've yeah. not ever lost that humility. Yeah. Well, and they were even talking about it. They were like, oh, gosh, I hope this succeeds. Yeah. I hope it's good. You know, like, <laughs> they never at any point did they ever rest on their previous successes. Right. They were always kind of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, we love the idea, but we really hope it works. Yeah. And I I think, you know, a, um, a successful person is always going to have that kind of thing in the back of their mind going gosh I hope this works because yeah. not everything's going to work no. and they again they had had other flops yeah so they're used to not winning every single right. time and they don't I don't think I think if you go into this business you don't go into the business going I'm gonna win a Tony award yeah. that would be an amazing cherry on yeah. an amazing ice cream sundae right. but like all you really want is the cup that the Sunday comes in. Right. Like, just give me, <laughs> like, I just, this is what I say. I just want to work mm-hmm. in musical theater for the rest of my life. Yeah. I don't need accolades. I don't need acclaim. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't really want fame. Yeah. I just want to be able to work just in musical theater, not having a survival job for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Is that too much to ask? I ask you. <laughs> but one of the other things that uh, Pamela and I were talking about at the before we started recording, I just it's okay. Ha- is it's okay? Yeah. You know, th- this show was so difficult for me. It got me so emotional because I'm. You know, both Pamela and I are at the age. We're closer <laughs> to the age of uh, all of the characters at, at the, the beginning. No, the beginning of the, the show. The beginning right, of exactly. the show where they're all, you know, uh, in their forties and jaded, disappointed. Yeah. They haven't. And things didn't turn out yeah, the way exactly. they had thought. So you know, when I when I saw the documentary again, I watched it again before we recorded, and then um, I just <laughs> thought about. It's it's sad to 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 look back, you know, and you see so you see so many of your friends like quitting mm-hmm. for various reasons. Yeah, um, their dreams. Uh, maybe some of them are finding a new dream, 
which is, you know, which is great. But it's still it's still a bit sad because like that hopeful, excited theater kid is mm-hmm. now like, no, I'm not doing it's just sad. It's just sad well, to watch. And it makes <laughs> it go. It makes me go back to that little 10 year old Pamela yeah. who would never have considered any other job right any other life (laughs) like it was broadway or bust right and that is what pamela at 10 years old 11 12 13 14 all the way through the end of high school that is what she worked towards you know she didn't care about anything else Mm -hmm. and there's still a little well a big part of her a big piece of her still in <laughs> year old Pamela. <laughs> um, you know, well, you know, I told you that I was born in 81, so right. do the math. You right. know what I mean? But it's like, I, you know, I'm not in my 20s anymore, right. so it doesn't come as easy anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I I have not given up on my dreams, mm-hmm. but I have definitely taken a break from them mm-hmm. because it's just, you know, you're, you get so many no's mm-hmm. and suddenly you're like well what am i doing this for right and then you you know you, you I, I think it's just so important to keep remembering what 10 year old pamela would have said right. i do i think about i think about little ebony and i'm like oh, i don't know how she'd be feeling about pamela would be standing with arms on her hips <laughs> legs akimbo going get in that audition right now. <laughs> I did not give up my whole childhood for you to nanny for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mom would be like, why are, why, are, why are you an assistant? Why are you doing that? No, no. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. Mine I mean, she'd be angry. super happy about. She's like, okay, you're living in New York City, but why are you an assistant? Yeah. But it's big and then I would have to say, well, little Pamela, there's something called rent <laughs> and it must be paid every yeah. single month. <laughs> and the dreams aren't paying it. So dreams, dreams don't pay nothing. Well, sometimes they do. Sometimes they pay off. Yeah. You know, we haven't given up. I guess no. that's the point of this. This is a, it is a happy ending in right. that we can kind of look back on our lives <laughs> and say, OK, no, I'm not doing what I want to right now, but. The dream is still there. Yeah, it is still, still alive. It is burning bright. Like a burning. fire. Is it? Is it bright? Like sometimes, a fire in my heart. Sometimes it's bright. Sometimes it's... Well, it's like Alaska where on. half of the year it's really blown. bright and then half of the year it's it's dark. But it doesn't mean or the sun like has disappeared. It's like burning ashes. <laughs> right. It's there. So all I need to do is just go... Just blow on it a little bit. Just a little. Not so that it blows out. But so that it rekindles. Yeah. We have had a lot of metaphors going on here. <laughs> but I think... Regardless, the yeah. dream is still alive. It is. It's just very sleepy. Sleepy. <laughs> it's taking a nap. <laughs> uh, so if you want to know more about what happened to the cast after the show closed, you can watch the documentary. The best thing... Uh, the best worst thing that, that could have ever, ever happened. happened. <laughs> and it's on Netflix... Mm-hmm. Um, you can also buy it on iTunes. Yep, you could probably find it on YouTube. Let's be honest. Well, I, but you it's can definitely pay for it. it's you definitely available it. on Netflix. Yeah, definitely on Netflix. I think you can pay for it on YouTube. Oh, okay, it's not that's like good. in full on YouTube. Okay, uh, and then I think it's on Amazon Prime for for like rental. Okay. as well. Uh, but I have Netflix, so that's how I watch. It. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Who doesn't have Netflix? You well, should get Netflix. <laughs> 
Hey, guys, can you do us a favor and check us out on Facebook, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Theater Geeks Anonymous? Or you can follow us on Twitter at TGA. B-Way! <laughs> it still, it never loses its luster. I love it. Uh, TGA B-Way at gmail.com is our email address. You can directly link with us on email and tell us stories. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us that we were wrong in certain facts. Um, tell us that we're awesome because we all need that. Yeah. Uh, Any <laughs> questions that you have? Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Comments, questions, whatever. If you've got any suggestions for future episodes, let us know because we're we've got a huge list, yeah. but we're always interested in hearing what you guys want to hear. Mm-hmm. Like, share, follow us on Facebook, rate, review, subscribe on, on iTunes. iTunes. So we need as much support as we can possibly get from you guys so that we can continue to do this because this is one of the dreams that Ebony and I mm-hmm. want to pursue. So we really want this to succeed and it's only going to succeed if you guys help us out. Right. I that's, think that's it. it. Thanks for coming by, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.